I'm truly just phoning it in. Literally phoning it in. Planning on doing it every night to school night before summer is officially here. That was weird. Oh, that's bizarre. Street lights just went on, but like they, they flashed on two or three times before they actually turned on. I was like, am I going to go for a walk along this street and it's just going to be flashing street lights? Flashing street lights. Um, but uh, yeah, you're probably going to do it every night to school night before uh, summer's officially here because this is be it's become a uh, a quarterly seasonal show there's a seasonal every night to school night episode just a little seasoning for the season but uh phoning it phoning it in here again something about that idea of resentment you know, because I think there's a lot of it going on. I mean, there's always resentment going on. People always find reasons to resent each other. But it's something that I just feel. And resentment it isn't something that's usually stated openly. Like, when somebody resents you, it's a passive-aggressive feeling. And, uh... It doesn't usually come right out in the open. But I, I'm sensing it a lot. So it's something you sense in other people. And if there's one thing that makes you resentful, that makes you resentful toward a specific person, it's when you think they resent you. And that's a good exercise. Just It's a good exercise to, to go through sometimes where, you know, the way we live our lives, we kind of operate as if... Well, the way we operate is... If you find out that somebody doesn't like you, your immediate reaction to that is, oh, I don't like them now because they don't like me. And the plus side of that is if you find out somebody likes you, you might like them just for that reason alone. Oh, that person likes me, therefore I like them. It's how we live a lot of our lives, you know, and I don't know if there's any way around it. But uh, a good exercise is when somebody doesn't like you, when somehow that somehow you figure that out, somehow you know that, instead of in turn not liking them in, as this sort of response, just uh, continuing to like them, or, or just not think anything one way or another, it really strengthens you to be able to do that. It's, it, it's like the, the mind's, it's the mind's version of training your core. And everyone talks about training your core, your abdomen, your midsection. That's kind of what that sort of exercise does for you mentally. It kind of trains your core to not just react and to not have your feelings about other people and the world for that matter be just a reaction to how you think they feel about you. It's very ego-driven. It's very narcissistic. It's also very normal to feel that way. And you know, I've never paid attention to that comedian Mark Marin. Zero interest. But I happened to see him on a show a while back he happened to be a guest on a show I was watching. 
and he said something I liked along these lines, and I think I've brought it up on here before, but he said the way he used to think, and maybe still does think, but he's aware of it, is someone used to come up to him at comedy clubs and in that sort of situation where things are very competitive. You know, people are, are very socially and professionally competitive in everything they do. But from what I've gathered, it's very common in comedy. And he was talking about how, like, you know, years ago in comedy clubs, people would come up to him and say, like, oh, what do you think of John? What do you think of John so-and-so? And his gut reaction was to be like, oh, fuck him. That guy's such an asshole. And then the, the person who brought him up would follow that up with, oh, really? Because you know, he was just talking to me about you, and he says he's, he really likes you, and he thinks you're doing a great job, and you know, he wants to hang out sometime. And then Mark Maron was like, when I would hear that, I would suddenly be like, well, you know, oh, John, I actually do like him. You know, He would change his tune. Like when he found out that... And, and that tells you something about just the way we talk about people. Where if somebody brings up another person that you both know, and you don't know what that person thinks about them, you're probably going to assume that they're going to gossip or talk shit about that person. Oh, hey, you know, do you know John? Like, what do you think of John? Because usually when someone asks us, like, what do you think about so-and-so? It's not usually like, what do you think about him? Because I think he's a great guy. Usually when someone says, what do you think about this person? They're bringing it up because they want to know that you don't like that person so they can gossip or share whatever it is they want to say about them. So, you know, in that situation that he talked about where someone brings that person up, and, and you know, I relate to that too because I think I've gotten better at it, but, you know, for, for you know my whole life I would... Uh, you know, if I didn't really know somebody but they were just kind of peripherally around, I would kind of take on this negative stance toward them. Like I had no reason to do that, but I would just kind of default to this sort of negative outlook about people that I didn't really know. And, you know, so he was saying he did the same thing, where, you know, I've probably given more, I probably talked about this one little line from a comedian I, I couldn't care less about. I couldn't care less about him. But uh, you know, probably given more life to that little statement he made. But really, I related to it. To it. Uh, I was like, oh yeah, you know, I, I completely know that thing where somebody brings up some, you know, a mutual acquaintance and you've already formed kind of this negative stance toward them for no reason, no good reason. And then you find out that they said something good about you. Oh, they they were actually admiring you from afar and wanted to hang out and said something nice about you. And you hear that and it completely changes your tune. Because that's what happens, like when you have just kind of a negative disposition toward other people, there's usually very little basis for it. And for me, it usually wasn't even anything that people did, it was just the way they looked. You know, I'm, I'm very uh, sensitive to faces. <laughs> and, if, and if someone's face just doesn't uh, sit right with me, I can easily just start thinking, eh, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know about them. But then if I were to find out that person uh, you know, had a favorable opinion of me, I might completely change my tune. And that shows you how flimsy my negativity was, you know, such a flimsy foundation for being so negative.
But with the idea of resentment, that's kind of how resentment works too, where what I've realized about it over the years is resentment is rarely the result of something somebody overtly did to you. Just like resentment itself isn't overt, it's usually not a response to some sort of overt affront. Because when someone insults you or does something that is obviously disrespectful or mean, that doesn't create resentment in you. That just creates a like, you know, screw that person because they did this. And if that person's name were to come up, you would say, oh yeah, I don't like that person because they stole from me or they insulted me. That's not really resentment. That's more just like, I, I just don't like that person. I don't think that is flimsy. Well, maybe you shouldn't hold on to that kind of thing. If somebody does insult your dignity or your honor deliberately, I think it's fair. I think there's a foundation there to not like that person very much. Again, you shouldn't be consumed by it, but I think it's it's that I think that's valid. But that's not resentment. Resentment is it, it's more subtle and what I've realized about it is not the result of overt things that somebody does to you. It it usually comes from somebody not doing what you wanted them to do. It's some sort of expectation that you had of that person doing something that you wanted. That's what makes you resent them, when they don't do it. Or they don't do it the way you wanted them to. I think that's what I, what I notice with a lot of people I know. Is they're very wanty. You know, people are very wanty. They're not needy. As I've said before, needy is kind of a, mis, a misnomer. A misnomer. Our, our substitute teacher is Mrs. Nomer. Oh man, the teacher's sick. I wonder if we're going to have Mrs. Nomer. But uh, it's a Mrs. Nomer. Mr. Nomer. Did you know that, that Mrs. Nomer's husband is a teacher too? And his name is Mr. Nomer? Oh man, my science teacher was gone today and we had Mrs. Nomer. But you know what's weird is that then I went to English class and my English teacher was gone too and we had Mr. Nomer. It's a weird school, weird school district. The weird school district. Gonna write, I think they already did that, right? Isn't that what those like uh, Mrs. What was her name? Mrs. Frizz? I wanna say her name was Mrs. Frizz, but I might be getting that wrong. The magic school bus. Where it was like this zany, eccentric teacher who takes kids into people's bodies. It grossed me out. I didn't like it. We were heavily exposed to the magic school bus as a kid. Overexposed to it. Without our consent. You know, because you think parents, like when they read their kid picture books at night, it's usually what the kid wants. You know, it's like they like it. But some of that shit that got forced on us at school, some of the children's books that got forced on us at school, like we never consented to that. Maybe some of the kids did. Maybe majority ruled. But I hated a lot of that shit. I loved the children book, children's books I loved. 
but I hated the ones I hated. There was very little in between. A lot like music. Children's books and music. And it's not true down the board. You know, like, I don't feel that way about movies, TV, a lot of things. Movies and TV just kind of swim around in this, like, lukewarm gray area. Well, I don't love movies and TV that much. But I don't really hate most of it either. I just kind of don't, don't really feel anything. It just kind of bores me. Uh, but uh, there are some things, children's books and music, that I either have a very strong love or a very strong hate. And while there is stuff in between, I'd say like those polar opposites take up way more space with me. But the Magic School Bus, like that was forced on us. And it was always gross. And I'm, I'm squeamish. Body stuff doesn't sit well with me. And there was one, probably one of the most famous ones, where the Magic School Bus can get really small, I guess. And, uh, I mean, it definitely gets... I'm not guessing. The Magic School Bus's whole thing is it can shrink to... It becomes miniature-sized, tiny. And they do that. They shrink the Magic School Bus, and then the teacher takes them on a field trip through the human body. So you can already see this is going to be gross. But the worst part is they go into the stomach, and like they show these drawings of uh, like green stomach acid dissolving food. And the kids are like, oh, look, there's that. I hate to even recall this. Right now I feel like I'm describing like my own bathroom habits or something, but it's like one of the kids sees in the stomach acid in the stomach, like a whole piece of something. I don't feel like I'm making this up. I think it was in the book. The kid's like, oh, there's a whole, what is, there's a whole something. But it was just disgusting. And you know, the last thing I want to read in a children's book when I'm already in school is about kids in school. The last thing I want to read as a kid in school, like children's books, you know, they take you to such fantasy worlds. They do so much for your imagination. And here you're supposed to like sit on the on the floor, which I hated to begin with. I hated sitting on the floor. Disgusting. It was all it was just a lot of being forced to do a lot of disgusting stuff. And I'll I'll go into this for a second where they would make us sit on the floor of the school library and the librarian or somebody else would sit in a chair because they wanted to lord over us. You're going to listen to me read this book in a very slow voice. Because I've talked about this many times on here about I don't like it. I don't like the voice people take on when they read children's book to, books to kids. They read things very slowly and it has this rhythm to it that I can't even do. And I've said this before, but a lot of women right now talk this way to everybody. I don't know when that happened, but I've noticed it. <laughs> Negative outlook here, but uh, no, I've noticed that like a lot of women these days talk to everybody, to other adults, in the same voice they would read a children's book to children. And these infographics that are very popular in recent years, like there's these political and whatever, so you know, social issue. There's a lot of these infographics, and they're basically online children's books for politicized adults. They're written using the same kind of cadence 
and language is children's books. And they have cartoons, so I mean, they're children's books. But they're propaganda. But, uh... Yeah, I, I just... that Even as a kid, like, being talked to in that voice really bothered me. Because I think there's a way that you can talk to kids that isn't that. And it's interesting when you see somebody who's really good at talking to kids, but they don't do it in the way that you expect people to. Like, like when I was watching those pizza reviews, I'm still watching them, but when I was like really just in this bizarre wormhole where I was just watching like a hundred of them in a night, there were a couple where he did them with kids. Like one time he did one with like this little girl who was a cancer patient. One time he did it with like a kid who is some probably some kind of social media star. I mean, little kid. He's probably some kind of kid who his parents filmed him doing something on YouTube and he got famous. But he did pizza, Dave Port and I did uh, pizza reviews with these kids. And the way he talked to the kids, like he talked in the same exact way he talks to everybody, but just a little bit toned down. But he was still, because he likes to give people shit and he was giving these kids shit. Like he was even giving this like little girl who's a cancer patient with no hair. He was, he was kind of like asking her questions to get a rise out of her and she enjoyed it because it was like he was talking to her like a human being and it was fun like he really he knew how to stay himself while making it fun and like a little more engaging for a kid and i'm like that's a, that's an art this guy could be the worst father in the world you know if he had a kid but just his ability to engage these kids on camera for his pizza reviews i was like he's still being the same person he is in all of the pizza reviews a lot of which aren't really that kid-friendly, the way he talks. But he's really good at talking naturally to these kids in a way where, like, he's conscious that these are children and you have to talk to them in a slightly different way. But something I've noticed, you know, because most people, they talk to kids... It's really psychotic the way they talk to kids. They talk in these really high-pitched voices and they make themselves sound really stupid. And you know, when I was a kid, I really appreciated it when an adult talked to me like a person. Not that they expected me to be an adult, because that's a weird thing. It's like, you can talk to a kid almost like you would talk to an adult while not expecting them to be an adult. And as a kid, I knew it, like, I hated when somebody talked to me. Like, yeah, everybody's mom or, you know, most people's moms, like, baby them a little bit. And that's great. You know, you want to be babied by your mom because you are your mom's baby. But there was this, uh, like, patronizing. That's, what, that's the word I would use. There's a patronizing way that people talk to children. And I remember, I didn't have the word for it. I didn't know what patronizing meant when I was five, seven years old. But I knew that what they were doing to me was patronizing. And so when they would read us children's books in, in library class, they'd make us sit on the floor and they would lord over us in a chair. And then they would patronize us. You know, they would talk to us like we were stupid. And it, it, they would read the books like we were idiots. And those books are already written in such a way that you don't have to do that. Children's books are already written in a way that make it easy for kids to comprehend them. So when you read it in slow motion, in a weird voice, that doesn't actually make it more 
engaging to the kid because it's already written in a way like yeah you're not gonna zip through it so the kid can't hear what you're saying but it's already written in a way where if you just read it normally it'd be like and then mr green checked his mailbox and he found that the letter he was expecting wasn't there the next day mr green checked his mailbox and the letter he was expecting, and he was there. I don't know what the fuck story that is, but Mr. Green's mailbox. I can see these. You can you can fucking write these in your sleep. I just made. I just wrote a children's book as you're listening to this, and I will apply for the copyright before posting this, so nobody steals my idea. Mr. Green's mailbox. He's waiting to hear from. A long-lost friend and he checks his mailbox every day and there's no letter eventually one or one day he checks the mailbox and there's a letter from his friend and you know what that's the entire plot of a children's book it's like under 10 pages mostly illustrations with like a sentence or two on each page you could have like three pages of him checking the mailbox and being sad there's no letter there. And one day he checks it and he's thrilled and that's the end of the book. That's how easy it is. But anyway, so you know, they would read it to us in this patronizing voice while we're on the floor. And the library carpet in my elementary school, it was like, it was the most disgusting color and texture. I don't know what it's called. I'm sure I could look it up and figure out like the official name of this type of carpet. But it was like little woven together. It was like this nasty, like scratchy material. And it was kind of like cross-hatched. But like the result was it looked like a bunch of little balls on the ground. Like where the where they like... Uh, and you were on the floor, so I mean, you were staring at this shit. You had nothing to do while you listened to this person like read shit in a slow motion patronizing voice and turn the page like once every five minutes, you had plenty of time to stare at the carpet. So I remember the, the library carpet at my elementary school very vividly. I can, you know, practically feel it right now. But it was like wove, this like this like scratchy material woven together in a way that like almost made it look like, like it was like cross-hatched in such a way that almost like, it almost made it look like they were all like these little like round balls sticking out. It, it wasn't actually what they were, but it just visually looked like that. And then the color was like this disgusting, like sun-streaked orange. What we call sun-streaked orange. A little bit of sun-streaked uh, sun orange. With like brown. I, I don't even know what the other colors were. There were like darker colors mixed in with it. It was basically like a collection of the ugliest colors. Like, you know how, like, what's what's amazing about the Cleveland Browns is they have the ugliest uniform ever, but that makes it amazing. Like an orange helmet with a brown jersey is the ugliest combo you could ever come up with. I mean, to be fair, they, they look like their name, the Browns. But it's just, it's it's like, there's something amazing about a football team where everything's color-coded. And then there's one team who's just like, yeah, you know what? Our uniforms are going to be the ugliest you can ever imagine. 
There's not even going to be a cool logo. We're just going to be called the Browns. And they're named after their, I think their original owner or coach. His name was something brown. Something brown. That's awful. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, so, so it's like the ugliest colors imaginable. That, that's kind of what the school carpet was like in my, my library, where it was just like... But it wasn't like straight orange, like the Cleveland Browns orange. Like I said, it was like this sun-streaked, kind of like yellowy orange. Like there were probably like both yellow and orange fibers in it, but then mixed with brown and all these other nasty colors. So you, and you had to sit on this, and it, it wasn't comfortable, it wasn't soft. It was probably like a matter of centimeters between you and the concrete floor, you know? It was one of those carpets where like, it doesn't even seem to... I mean, that was my last house. The last house I lived in forever. The very rustic cinder block shack. The carpet was just like this very thin layer of nothing over a straight concrete floor. Like, if you fall on that, there's no cushion. That's what my elementary school library was like. And then worse than that, like, speaking of sitting on the floor, I was going to mention this, mention this a second ago. I'm just filled with resentment toward my childhood elementary school. Uh, but, uh... Sometimes we'd have to sit in the uh, the gymnasium, like gym class, as you would imagine. We called it P.E. But as you can imagine, gym class was in the gymnasium. And we have to sit on the floor. And the floor, it wasn't like a wood basketball court style gym. It was just like these hard porcelain, I don't even know what it was made of, but it was, or saran, I don't, I don't know what that is. Just like a hard white, Hard white tiles. Hard white tiles. Come see my band. We're called the Hard White Tiles. Oh, dude, that's the guy from the hard, the white hard tiles. Dude, the, the guy from the white hard tiles lives in my neighborhood, and I see him at the grocery store. They have a song called Something Brown. But, uh, that would have been fine. Like, yeah, in gym, like, we would have to get there and we would have to sit on the floor in these little lines. We had a line that we had to sit in every day. It was assigned. You had to sit in a line. They had, like, I don't know how many. Like, maybe five lines. And we'd all have to sit in this straight line, the same line every day. But the, the problem with it wasn't just that we had to sit on the ground. It was that the gymnasium also doubled as the cafeteria. They had tables built into the walls. They had kind of like a hide-a-bed. We had hide-a-lunch tables. Hide-a-table. So the, the lunch tables, which were big, long, like with stools built in, just your typical cafeteria tables. These long wooden tables with stools that would come down that were built into the table. It was... Those were built into the walls of the gymnasium. And I think it was every other day, they had a system where like every other day we would eat in the gym, AKA the cafeteria. And then in the in-between days, we would eat in the classroom. But on the days when you uh, ate in the gym, 
slash cafeteria, you really didn't want to have a class who had PE afterward, especially right afterward. And one year we did. One year the class I was in had our PE like immediately after uh, lunch in the cafeteria. So, so like we'd be in there in gym class and like, yeah, the janitors did their job or tried to, but there's no way like, you know, we're talking like possibly, uh, you know, the, I mean, the entire school would eat in that cafeteria in the gym. So I, I don't know if we're talking hundreds of kids, like 30 kids in a class. I could actually do the math on this if I really thought about it. Let's say, you know, 30, 30 kids per class on average. Each grade has three teachers. So, like, let's say there's 90 kids per grade. And then there's technically seven grades because it was kindergarten through sixth grade where I grew up. So, that's seven times nine. Which is what? Is that 72? There might have been 700 kids. No, it's not 70. Is it? 72? I'm, I'm, my math's failing here. It's a lot of kids. We're talking close to 800 kids, I'm thinking. My math's failing right now as it usually is. I think we're talking about 700 kids. Actually less, because they didn't bring the kindergartners in there. They didn't bring the kindergartners to eat lunch with everybody else. They kept The kindergartners had their own recess, their own playground, and they never ate lunch with everybody else. They basically kept the, the kindergartners completely isolated from the rest of the school. They weren't ready or something to interact with us. But, uh, so, let, let's say, like, there might have been, there were hundreds, let's just, you know, I know I just wasted your time with all this math, but they didn't, I didn't end up finishing the calculation, but let's say there were hundreds of kids in this, this uh, cafeteria eating, like, you know, monsters, making just the worst messes you've ever seen, because they did, and the school cafeteria's food was so disgusting, I'm not even going to describe it. It was so, it, you know, it was the stereotype you see on, like, TV shows where, you know, the, they show the food on some, like, sitcom about school, a school sitcom, and, like, the, the food is disgusting, or, like, prison food, you know, it's like Shawshank Redemption, the food has a worm in it. That was the level of food that my elementary school had, and kids would make a mess of it in their little trays. And, uh, you know, even if the janitors did a good job, you couldn't clean it all up. And I remember sitting there on the floor in gym class because we had the, the misfortune of having gym class right after lunch and, like, seeing food still on the floor, like, disgusting food just inches away from us. And it's like, you should not make kids do that. Whoever came up with this idea to have gym class in the same room as the cafeteria, on the same exact floor. Yeah, it saves some space, but I remember what you guys did to me. I resent you for it. I resent that school for doing that to me. This dirty floor. 
Like, why couldn't we just stand? It's because they want us to be subservient, you know? They want kids to sit and for the teacher to either stand or sit in a chair over them. We could have just stood. It's gym class. We're not looking to rest. Gym class isn't where you sit. So just have a stand in line. But no, we had to sit on this disgusting cafeteria floor because they were too cheap to have a cafeteria and a gym, so they combined them into the same space. And then we have to sit on it. No good. But anyway, yeah, you know, just resentment. Uh... What I was talking about a second ago was uh, 10, 20 minutes ago, whatever it was, was uh, how it's usually something like that somebody doesn't do that you want them to do. And how the term needy, really what it describes is somebody who's wanty. You're not needy, you're wanty. Like when you think about somebody you know and you would describe them as needy, they're not usually, you know, they're not usually looking for resources to help them with their actual needs. They're not usually looking for relief in a way that's needed in their life. They're a hungry ghost and they're wanting things. They want something from you or somebody else. Because the truly needy, well, that's not a negative thing at all. It doesn't bother you at all you actually feel worse because of it. Like if there's somebody you meet who's needy and you can't help them, you're the one who feels bad. Like if somebody's on the street asking for money and you can't give them money, you're the one who feels bad about that. Because you're like, yeah, that person probably does need some money. Sucks that I can't give it to him. But with... Uh, the people who we usually describe as needy, it's that they're wanting. And there's never enough. You can never actually satisfy their want. Because if it's somebody who wants attention, well, somebody who wants attention is never satisfied. They never reach a point where they're like, oh, that's enough attention. It just makes them want it more. It's addictive. And uh, so, wantiness. Sounds silly to say, but it's more appropriate than neediness. The thing about wantiness, which sounds fucking stupid to say. The thing about wantiness, though, about wanting, let's just call it wanting. The thing about wanting is you're looking for something from somebody that you don't actually need. You might think you do, but you don't actually need it. And then when they can't do that or don't do that, you end up resenting them for it. Oh, that person didn't do what I wanted them to do. And I, I'm feeling a lot of that in the air. There's people in my life who, lately it's just been a tornado for everybody I know. Every single person I know is in their own tornado. And everybody's personal tornadoes form the greater tornado we're all in. 
And I'm feeling that way too. I'm in my own tornado as well. But when, when everybody's in that situation, it's like they're all looking for somebody to grab hold of. And it's great when you're in a position to do that for people. And with some people, it's easier than others. But in this sort of situation, when you can't do that and they can't do it for you, it's a breeding ground of resentment. Like everybody's spinning around and they're trying to grab hold of something. And they're like, well, I, I thought I could grab hold of you. And you're like, well, I'm spinning too. I'm not sure, uh, you know, I'm not sure it's a great idea. I'm spinning too right now. But what that person hears is, no, you can't grab hold of me. No, you can't steady yourself by grabbing hold of me. And that's something I've learned a lot, like what someone hears. Not what's said, but what someone hears is often such a different thing from what's said or, or done. And some people are looking to be done wrong. You know, some of the people who are the most resentful, well, they may not have chosen to be that way. They've kind of gone down a tunnel where they actually want to resent more things. It's, it's kind of like what I was saying about attention, where like when you give somebody attention, they're like, well, that was nice, but I, I could use a little more. I think I like I liked that getting attention thing. I could use a little more. It's, it's the same thing with resentment, where it's like, if you're if you've become a resentful person, not like you just have some one-off feeling of resentment towards someone, but when you become a resentful person, it's never really satisfied. Like there's never enough resentment to meet your fill, and as a result, you start looking for other opportunities to resent. I'm gonna pause it for a split second. We're back. But yeah, when somebody becomes a resentful person, they start looking for other things to resent. Because that becomes part of their story. Their personal story becomes things that people do to me. Oh, you want to hear about my story? It's a story about people doing things to me. How everybody let me down. And because that's their story... They need more examples. They need more uh, examples to make their argument. Oh, oh, this is what everybody does to me. And we've all known people like this, and maybe we've been this way ourselves, where like something bad happens to us, and usually it's not something truly bad. It's just not something we want, or we didn't get what we wanted. And then our own personal narrative says, oh, it's just another example. Fuck my life. Fuck my life. Just another person in a long history of letdowns. Oh, you didn't do the thing I wanted? Oh, it's pretty typical. Nobody ever does what I want. And that's a really unattractive quality. When you think about like what attracts you to a person, not sexually, but what simply attracts you to another human being, what makes you want to talk to them, what makes you want them in your life. That never appeals to people. Even resentful people don't feel that way. 
they might surround themselves with people like that because water finds its own level but even they don't like to hear about it you know my thing i've been saying this for a long time my own stupid uh take on the famous phrase misery loves company my amendment to that is misery hates company but it lets it in anyway Miserable people don't actually like being around other miserable people, but they invite them in anyway because water finds its own level and there reaches a point where the only people that miserable people can find are other miserable people, but they both resent each other because miserable people can do very little for each other. They're both usually very wanty. I mean, a miserable person is often the wantiest of all. But another miserable person can't do much for him. So misery doesn't love company. Misery hates company, but it invites it in anyway. And usually what it does is it talks shit to its company about the last person that was there. And then when that person leaves, they talk shit to the next person. And they're happy to tell their story. A miserable, resentful person is happy to go on and on to you about all of their problems all of their letdowns, all of their unsatisfied wants. But the second you start talking about yours, the second that you relate in some way, the second that you say, oh yeah, you know, that kind of reminds me of my situation because so-and-so didn't do this and you wouldn't believe it what so-and-so said. And a miserable person doesn't want to hear that. They want to share their narcissistic story and struggles, but they don't want to hear yours. And that's when they kick you out. And when the next person comes in, they say, Oh, my God, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, Mikey was here. You know, Mikey was just here, and, uh, you know, I gotta tell you, uh, he was talking about this, this, and this, and I was just like, Oh, my God, you. Yeah, that's what happens. That's what, that's what misery creates. But, uh,. You know, so that, that's, resentment kind of finds resentment, and you know, and those two people will resent each other. And they'll resent each other for resenting each other. Going back to what I was saying earlier, often what people want to know, you know, one of the big things that people often want to know is just like, does this person approve of me? And if so, you'll approve of them. But we end up in this weird social standoff where it's like you're waiting for the other person to approve of you, but they're waiting for you to approve of them. And people are so concerned with like saving face. They're so sensitive. People are so exquisitely sensitive and their egos are so fragile that the idea of like giving approval to somebody and them not giving approval back feels like dying. So what I, the example I always use is like when you see somebody that you kind of know, not a close friend, let's go with a classmate. You see a classmate of yours and you're not really, you don't really talk, but you, you kind of know each other. And you see them out in public somewhere and they wave at you and you wave back and you realize they were waving at somebody behind you. You feel like you just died in that moment. 
I still have a vivid memory of this girl, kind of a pretty athletic girl. You know, I think I had a crush on her for a little while. Like, looking back now, it seems really strange. I'm like, that, did I have a crush on that girl? She doesn't seem that great, but nothing against her. But I, I saw... <laughs> she doesn't seem that great now. See, that's my... That's, I resent her. No. But I saw her at like a... I think there was like a, like a football game or something. The varsity team. I was a kid and like the varsity team was playing. And uh, I, I saw her at the football game. We were all walking around and like she waved directly at me. Like direct... In my direction. Like perfectly. And I waved back. And I did kind of know her. You know, we'd gone to school together forever. I think I, I think I even went to like a birthday party of hers or something. But she waved at me. And I waved back, and then, like, I saw that she was looking past me, and I turned, and I saw that, like, it was another girl. If it was another guy, that would have just been... I might have actually died. That might have actually killed me. If, I think that would do a number on you. I don't. That, that's never happened to me, where, like, you see a girl from school, and you think she's waving at you, and it turns out she was waving to another guy behind you. Just Even just saying that out loud, I'm like, that would... You'd melt. Lightning would strike you right there and you'd melt. But no, she was waving at another girl. But look, I still remember it. I'm 36 years old and I still remember that time that this classmate of mine seemed to be waving at me, but she was actually waving at another girl behind her. I still remember it because I remember feeling like you don't even know how to pull your arm down. You don't even know the best. You, you don't know how to recover like... You, you can kind of laugh at yourself. It's like that thing I do sometimes where like... Like, you know, there's been a couple times in my life where I don't walk around staring at my phone. But a couple times I've been like walking and looking at my phone and I trip on a crack in the curb. And if, I'm, if there are other people around, I kind of laugh to myself. Like sometimes it is genuinely funny, but I've definitely fake laughed. Just to be like, see, I'm in on it. It was stupid. But with, uh, when I like, when I thought this girl was waving at me, but she wasn't, and my hand is up in the air, you can try to do that. Like, oh, I fake laugh. Look at me. I'm so stupid that I tried waving. I thought somebody was waving at me and I waved back and found out they weren't waving at me. Ha ha. But really it's not funny. And you feel like some sort of, you feel your own mortality in that moment for some weird reason. Like, you might experience far worse things in life than that. Uh, you probably will, I imagine. But something about that really shakes us. And uh, there's something, like, deeply embarrassing about it. Even though when you actually lay it out, there's nothing embarrassing about it at all. It's not even remotely embarrassing. Oh, somebody that I know from school waved directly toward me. And I wave back. Oh, it turns out they were waving at somebody else. Seems like a very logical, practical mistake to make. But I think what makes you feel shitty after that, after finding out they weren't waving at you, I think it's that you were excited or something. Like when this girl waved at me, I think I felt excited that this girl acknowledged me. And then when I saw that she was acknowledging somebody else, I was like, oh, not only can I not feel excited about that, it's embarrassing. 
but uh, it's kind of what it, you know what it's like when uh, when you like like approval. You know that's that's kind of what it's like when when you find out that somebody doesn't approve of you in some way. They don't like you. Is you kind of feel like oh like uh, it's almost like somebody waved at you. But it turns out they weren't waving at you. You get that same, it shakes you. Especially if you like them. And that happens romantically probably more than anything. Like you like a girl, you find out she's not interested in you. Maybe she even thinks you're gross. That one, uh, the number of guys who have probably had legitimate trauma done to them because they heard something that their crush said about them behind closed doors. Oh, he, oh, he likes me. He's gross. I'm sure that's when that's gotten back to a guy. It's probably just shaking him down to his core. He still remembers it. I'm sure. Can't remember that ever happening with me that I can think of offhand. I think the closest thing I can remember to feeling that way, like when I first really got into drinking, and every time I drank, just started to become like I'm just gonna drink until I'm really drunk. I remember there was like this girl, and I became friends with her, good friends with her actually, but she was always coming to town to visit her other friends that I hung out with, and she and I like hit it off and we got along. But I, I was never really like trying to, I don't know, I was never like that interested in her, but she was pretty and, and cool and stuff. But I remember like, she, like, through a mutual friend, they told me, like, they asked her, like, what she thought about me. And she's like, oh, he's really cool. But every time I hang out with him, he's just really drunk. And I was like, I remember being shaken a little bit. But kind of, la like, I thought it was funny, though. Because I was like, oh, yeah, that's, like, that's kind of a classic story all of a sudden. That's kind of, like, that's how you know. Like, that's how you know <laughs> you're, you're drinking a little too much. Is when a girl's like, oh yeah, he's cool, and like, you know, I'd be interested in him, but he's just really drunk every time I see him. You know, it's, it's not like I was like a falling down. You know, I wasn't even even remotely out of control at that point, which makes it even more relevant. It's just like she perceived that I was just drinking way too much every time she saw me. But I remember like it was that sort of feeling, right? Like I felt I felt my mortality in that moment, and I was like, oh, that's like something you hear that really makes you evaluate your life. <laughs> but I, I never remember growing up or anything, like, ever hearing that... I knew that, like, certain girls weren't interested in me and things like that, and that was, you know, never... You're never happy about that. But I fortunately don't have any memories of, like, it getting back to me that a girl I liked said something really negative about me or said I was gross. Because I think that would stay with you a long time. I think it would stay with you forever. The power we have <laughs> over people, but there's something like that—that that feeling of having your like mortality shaken. It's like I approve of this person, and I found out they don't approve of me. And your go-to response is to resent them for it. Is to like be like, okay, well, I'm gonna feel the same way they feel back at me. But it's like you're not them. They might not like you, but you're not them. And you don't have to turn that into the currency between you. And for all for all you know in that situation, when you find out that someone doesn't approve of you, 
they could very well be like what Mark Marin said, where like they don't approve of you because they think that uh, you know that you don't approve of them. Literally, the entire basis behind somebody not liking you or approving of you could be because they just think that's what you think about them. And then now that you think that they think that about them, that's what you're going to think about them. It's, it's a mess that we're living in. And this isn't new. This is how it's been as far as I, as long as I've been alive. I'm sure, I'm sure it's been around much longer than that. This is a phenomenon that started in the last 36 years in America. No, this is something that's just in us. It's in our fallen nature. But it's, it's kind of like holding two mirrors up to each other. But, uh, you know, it's, it's wanting something from somebody else that forms a lot of the resentment you have. It's the expectation. And a good example of that is like what they used to call like the nice guy syndrome. And I know this kind of guy exists. This, guy, this is a real type of guy for sure. They, they didn't just make this up. But what they were, a few years ago, like somebody started calling it like nice guys, nice guy syndrome. And it was guys who are kind of nerdy and polite and who are really nice to women, really nice to girls and are even willing to be their friend. But they're, they're doing that with the expectation that by being nice to her and catering to her, she's going to develop romantic feelings for them. And in the, in the this type of guy has always existed too, you know. Guys have always done this. They've tried to be the nice guy. But they actually, they're being nice because they want something from her. Not just sex or something, you know, dirty like that. They want her approval, maybe. Definitely want her approval. So they're nice to this girl because they're wanty. They want something from her. And then when they find out she's just truly not interested in them that way, they're mean to her. And in the digital age, this plays out very directly and very suddenly. And I've seen these screen caps of conversations that women have posted online. I know it happens. I mean, it, it, this isn't something that is made up. It's where men will act this way. They'll be very nice, very accommodating. And then the second that the girl has to, has to state explicitly she's not interested in the guy, the guy responds with, well, you're not even very pretty anyway. Full of yourself much? You follow yourself much? Oh, you're a bitch. Guys will just say that. They are feeling rejected. They are... It, it's known to them that these girls just aren't interested in them. And so, in response, they go... They, they flip... They do a complete 180 and they go from being really nice and polite and accommodating to this girl to then berating her in really petty ways. And that's because they wanted something from her that she didn't or couldn't give to them. And that's exactly what I'm saying here. It Immediate resentment forms. Immediately resentment forms out of that.
And that happens romantically all the time. I mean, a longer form version of that is just dating in general. Like, even if you do hit it off with somebody, you know, think about all of the people who, like, all of their stories revolve around things their ex-girlfriends or boyfriends did, their ex-husbands, ex-wives. You think about how many people's story revolves around that. It's a long list of people who disappointed them, did them wrong. And that's a really good example because romance is where we want the most. Never are we wantier than when we have a romantic interest, or, or even if we don't have a romantic interest, when we're simply looking for romance. And if you find romance, then you start wanting other things, plans. And it's, it's really, it's like, a, it's like a minefield. Being in a relationship with somebody, even in the best of times, even with somebody you genuinely like, it's still a minefield. Oh, I thought you were going to get me, uh... you know, there's all there's a whole range of people, you know, because like there, there are people out there where like if their husband gets them the wrong flowers for Valentine's Day, oh, you got me tulips, but you know I love roses. He got me tulips, but he knows I love roses. It's like, that's resentment. You, res you now resent your husband for getting the wrong type of flower for you on your birthday or Valentine's Day. Maybe your birthday is Valentine's Day. I have a friend, good friend of mine's birthday is on Valentine's Day. But, uh, th you know, th that, like, that's just a really petty thing that you can resent somebody over. I knew that a relationship I was in, that had been really good for a long time, but I knew it was over, like, subconsciously, when we got in a fight about ordering takeout. And it wasn't even the usual, like, man-woman fight about where to get it. Like, she, she got mad at me or expressed, like, contempt because I ordered the same thing I always ordered from that restaurant. And she was like, oh, you order that every time. And I could, I could tell that it wasn't just a joke. It wasn't like, you, oh, you order that every time, huh? It, I could tell that she was so sick of me that me simply ordering the same dish I, I like. I mean, because that's the thing is I've never been someone who gets to go food or like I, I've never been someone who like buys dinner from restaurants or gets takeout enough that I can really afford to like try different dishes from the same place. So if I'm ordering takeout from an Asian restaurant that I know I like, I'm usually going to get the thing I like. And I might like other things, but since I don't do it a lot, like, it might even be the reason why I even want to go there or get food from them. That's the case with a lot of things. Like, they have this one thing that you really, really like, and it's your treat. And if you order from them every day, well, maybe you're going to try something different. But you don't. You order from them, you know, once in a while. <laughs> you know, this is my defense here. But, you know, she wasn't even saying it because she really cared that I'm getting the same thing. I knew in that moment that she was so sick of me that she even resented me getting, like, the same dish I usually get. Like, I wasn't surprising her enough. I didn't surprise her by showing her, like, what a man of culture I am. 
that I'm going to get some other dish I've never heard of just to do something different. But I get it. Like, I, I didn't resent her because of that. And I ended up being the one to break up with her. So it's not like she left me over my takeout choices. But I just, I knew in that moment, like in, in retrospect, I remember like in that moment, just thinking like, oh, she's, she's mad at me for like ordering the same thing from the same restaurant on the occasion that we order from them. And it's not like we split, you know, we didn't share dishes. I don't like that. I don't like sitting on the floor and I don't like family style dining. You know, some things like, like, you know, a basket of garlic bread. Yeah, everybody, no, nobody needs their own basket of garlic bread. Appetizers make sense. You get the fried tofu. Everybody gets a couple pieces. Because every time I've ordered family style, somebody orders something I don't like. I order something I really like. And then they eat most of my food. And I don't want any of theirs. So I've never been a fan of that. But this girlfriend and I, we didn't do the family style eating. Like we would each order our own dish and just have that to ourselves. So she didn't even have like, you know, it wasn't even like, oh, you always order the same thing. And since we share, I'm sick of it. It was just, she was so sick of me. That just me, like knowing my patterns. Because that's, that's what happens in relationships. It's like you become so familiar with each other's patterns that it's both a... Uh, it's both a comfort, but you also get really sick of it. Like, you know each other's tics. You know each other's mental spasms, you know? So she was just sick of me. I don't, I don't think she hated me. She just, she was sick of me. And then there were like three more months of that kind of, those kinds of interactions where I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to be the one to do something about this. I didn't hold it against her. I didn't resent her for that. But I was just, I became very well aware of the fact of what was going on. But uh, it's often an expectation, it's often a want from somebody else. And like I was saying, romance is just filled with that. Once you're in a relationship with somebody, one of your major wants has been satisfied. You found somebody and hopefully you like them. But now there's all these other things you have to deal with. And that's sort of the, the beauty of it, but it's also just, it causes people so much grief. And given that I'm just, I'm a virgin, I've reclaimed my virginity, and I'm an alien monk now. It's interesting to listen to people's relationship problems. You know, I have a few friends who will bring these things up to me. I don't offer advice, I just, people need a listening ear. Because there's something about relationship problems. When somebody's experiencing relationship problems or a breakup or something, they're obsessed with it. They are completely obsessed with it and it, it feels like the most important thing in the entire world. And I'm not going to trivialize it because people kill themselves over relationships. People commit suicide because of breakups. People turn into resentful beasts for the rest of their lives and can't shut up about their ex-wife or ex-husband. You know, so I don't think it's tr a trivial thing that people have relationship problems and it feels important. 
because it really does consume you. But what's interesting about relationship problems is they feel like the biggest and most important thing to you if you're experiencing them. And while your good friends and family might like care about you and therefore want to listen and help, it's not that important to them. And usually like they just kind of think, okay, yeah, you know, I didn't hate your boyfriend or girlfriend, but I don't really see why you're twisting yourself in knots about that person. But I've also been in that position where I'm the one twisting myself in knots over somebody and a friend is like, I just don't see what the big deal is. Just move on. But, you know, it's good to lend people a listening ear, but when someone's going through a breakup and they're just, they, they turn into this hungry ghost and they want to talk about it all the time, it's good to hear them out and just have a conversation about it. But you realize, like, nothing is going to satisfy this person. And, it, tur and it, it turns them into an embarrassment. And I've been that embarrassment many times, so I don't say this as a dig. It just has that power to... It's, it's like being under a spell where this seems so important. When the reality is you met somebody you didn't know, usually, and decided to, like, start revolving around that person. You met somebody you barely knew, usually, unless you date a friend or something, but usually it's someone you don't really know. And there's all this pressure, like, to keep doing it. Go on more, you go on one date you like, go on more dates. Oh, we've been on this many dates, we're boyfriend-girlfriend. I see a police car up here. Just always, for, for such a quiet area, it's just, it's unbelievable how much police activity goes on here at night but uh you know it seems like the most important thing in the world to you but it's like to the people you're talking to they can listen to you talk about it two or three times but then they're going to be kind of like i'm sick of you talking about this and nothing i say is going to satisfy that want in you and it does turn us into these walking embarrassments where you'll say and do things you would otherwise feel shameful about. And obviously some people are psychotic and they'll like stalk their ex-girlfriends or hack their Facebook accounts, all kinds of things people do. But even I found myself in that sort of position. Like I remember a girl who broke up with me like right in the first wave of like social media popularity, like right when like everybody was using Facebook every day. You know, over a decade ago, when before people hated using that shit and they were all over it. And I remember, like, after we broke up, like, reading into what she said. Or, no, a good example of that is this other girl. Like, we we had broken up, and I was really sad about it. We didn't even... We only dated for a few months, but it was really... It was, like, an intense, short relationship. And I remember, like, reading into everything she said, and, like rereading a text message back to my friend being like what do you think she meant but the worst was like there was i posted a drawing or something and she liked it on facebook and i noticed i noticed i was like the, the girl who just broke up with me who in this moment i want nothing more from than for her to say i regret my decision let's let's get back together 
she liked my drawing. And you know what? This is how sad it is. And I'm sure this is a normal story. I'm not embarrassed to share this because, one, I've heard of far more embarrassing things, and two, I think this is probably fairly normal. The next day, I checked it again. Maybe I just needed a little dopamine rush. I needed a little hope. So I checked my the post again, and I saw that she had unliked it. Which I, I never would have thought of anybody else ever doing that. I never would have thought any time about like like noticing if somebody liked and then unliked my post a day later. But I checked it, and sure, sure enough, she had did that. And like, I remember even like googling that or something really sad. Like, what does it mean when a girl likes your post and then unlikes it later? I remember, like, thinking there was an answer to that. Like, I don't, I don't know that I Googled it, but I, I, I remember, like, asking people about that. Asking a friend. I was like, I noticed that she did this. And I remember, like, people's response was like, oh, dude, just don't, e don't even think about it. But then, you know, in more recent years, like especially being, you know, a virgin alien monk now, I remember, uh, I mean, I don't remember, I mean, I've experienced this recently, where like a friend is telling you about similar things. Like I had a friend who, he broke up with his girlfriend, but like she was, she was still like giving him like all this attention and like trying to win him back. And he was, but but he was also like completely focused on getting attention from her. And he was telling me, he's like, oh, you know, I've noticed that like since we broke up, like every time I post an Instagram story, uh, I check it to see who's looked at it. And, and like within seconds after I put it up, she's seen it. And I talked about those stories, and I never use Snapchat or anything like that, but I know that these, like, Instagram stories are modeled after that. And it took me a while to understand, like, why people like those. Like, yeah, they're temporary. They're kind of in the moment. They don't stay up. Although, like, I know you can make them stay up, so I don't know. But uh, they're temporary in theory, and they don't stay up. So, like, the idea is, like, it's not that everybody is so spiritually enlightened that they're, like... I can just post things and then they're gone because it's, it's, it's a momentary thing. You know, it's not that everybody's so spiritually enlightened. They just, they like the idea of like throwing, throwing like a photo out into the ether and it disappearing after a day. What I realized is, oh no, the reason why people do those is because it tells you who's seen it. Which is to say, they want to know if a certain romantic interest has, has looked at it. That's why they. That's why those became so popular. And uh, I found myself kind of doing the same thing. I tried using those, you know. I remember, like, once I, once I just like bit the bullet, and I was like, I guess I'll try using this. I remember thinking, like, oh, I'm gonna see if if she looked at it. And then I, when I realized that's like the primary motivation people have for using those in a lot of cases. Basically, whoever they want approval from. It doesn't even have to be romantic, but it's like they want, uh, you know, romantic approval. Or sorry, they, they just want some kind of general approval from somebody. So it's like, oh, that person saw my thing. Since people are so stingy with the like button, you know, since in people's minds, the like button on social media is like, oh, I should only give out likes very sparingly. 
it's it's like you're when you like somebody's post too much you know it's like you're waving at them and they're not waving back this is all real i'm not making this up this is how it is but with these stories it's like it's simply if they've seen it and that's what people want like there's people who post things on social media and like they post it wanting a specific person generally their romantic interest to like it and if that person doesn't like it that person then asks to themselves did she see it but with this story thing it's the panopticon sort of a fitness actually not the panopticon because the panopticon you never know who's actually seeing it like the early like what would now be called social media but wasn't called that back then things like live journal forums there was no way to measure whether somebody interacted or saw what you, what you did unless they commented the only way you could get acknowledgement or approval from another person on those formats on like journals and forums and things was they had to say something then they developed this like button where somebody could passively acknowledge something i've been saying for many years it's not the like button it's the acknowledgement button it's a way to acknowledge somebody and that's what we're looking for we're not looking for people to actually be excited when somebody posts something online they want it to be acknowledged above all else and if, guess what if it's not acknowledged they get resentful I mean, I'm sure people in the age of social media resent certain people for never liking their posts. That seems, I'm sure that's going on all across the friggin' world. I'm sure that forms resentment. But so like the like thing, it was a way to passively acknowledge somebody and say, like, I saw this and I like you. But then that didn't become enough, you know? So this story thing where there's no actual clicking of a button, it's simply whether somebody saw it. So you're seeing the fact that they saw it. And then that becomes the motivation for posting it. The motivation for posting a certain story is so that he or she will see it and I know that they saw it. Insane. But it made a lot of sense to me once I realized that. That's the appeal of it. It's not that everybody has this advanced personal philosophy where they're like, posting photos online should be fleeting. There doesn't need to be permanence. We can just put photos up for a little bit and it disappears and we're not attached to it. We're a bunch of Buddhist inst Instagram Buddhists. That's not the appeal for most people at all. The appeal for most people is you get to see who saw it. And people get stingy even about that, I bet. There's people who are worried even about that. Oh, no. Like, I remember feeling a little bit of a little something. It wasn't horrible, but I remember, like my last serious girlfriend like after we broke up like looking at some looking at people's instagram stories and it like automatically went to hers 
and even though there were no problems between us, like, I remember feeling, like, this moment of shame that, like, when she goes and looks to see who saw her thing, which she will, she's gonna see that I saw it. And this circles back to my friend who... He'd broken up with this girl. He'd been the one to do it, but he was pretty broken up about it. And, uh... He was, he was like analyzing every little thing she was doing. And he was saying to me, he's like, I've noticed that like when I post Instagram stories and like I check to see who saw it, like within minutes, she's the first one. Like I can post, he's like, I can post something and like within seconds, like she's always the first one to see it. And I'm like, well, you're, you're like checking it to see if she saw it. Like the reason you're checking this thing within minutes or whatever it is of posting it is because you want to see how quickly she looked and guess what she's looking because she's addicted to her phone and you I don't think I said it like this but you want to say to this person don't do that just don't do that because for all I know, he's putting things up with that in mind, like thinking like, oh, if I put this up, she'll see it. And then, and then you know, he was he was doing it in ways too, where he was like, uh, you know, oh, she she posted a, a story online, she posted an Instagram story of like herself at this you know special place that we had. You know, it was that, it was that sort of thing. Like like she went to the special place, like our special place, and took photos there just by herself and then posted them on her story which is an obvious message like obviously she did that with the intent of him seeing it and then probably whether she knew it or not wants him to think about whether or not she did it deliberately but either way it's a message and I, I just remember thinking like man I've been in that exact position like this is the same friend that I had the conversation with where I was like, yeah, the girl who just broke up with me, she like liked my art post. But then the next day I saw she unliked it. And I remember him just being like, oh, you, you poor, sad creature. And then I got to feel that way about him. Though. <laughs> Took a few years, but I got to feel that way about him where he was like telling me about his, his dilemmas over Instagram stories with this ex-girlfriend and like, this like weird game of like disembodied pong they were playing by like posting things that the other person would see and like monitoring when they saw it and what it meant and I got to feel that way I got to think like I've been there so I'm, I know it's not a character flaw it's just something that happens to us in those situations but I remember just thinking you poor sad pathetic creature So that's just a strange thing about all this is, you know, just, uh, just that, just that. Because most people know what this is, you know, most people know what I'm describing one way or another. Like just about everybody has their own version of that. It doesn't make it any better though, you know, it doesn't make it, but when that spell is over you, But then you think about like what led to that situation, like what led to you being in this situation where you've like, you've broken up with this person who you really didn't know, 
but decided to like commit to for a while to see how it goes. And obviously problems came up. Definitely resentments formed. Expectations weren't met and they were filled with resentment. You know, in the absence of the thing that that person wanted. And now you're just sitting here like playing disembodied Pong through this weird game of social media voyeurism. But hey, you know, this is the world we're in. This is the world we've created. Whew. But that's what's interesting though, is like when you're in, and this is true for friendships or coworkers or anything, you know, you end up having these expectations of people, these wants, and when they're not met, you of course fill them with resentment. But sometimes though, like when it's all over, when it's all said and done, you forget the resentment. Like that happens to you when you're in a, a fresh breakup. Like there's been all this resentment building. You've been, you know, you're so mad about like all these little petty things that have been going on. But then the second it happens, like the second that it's over and done, you're like, oh my God, you forget all about that stuff, which is really the funny part about it. Because it's like all of your wants and expectations are suddenly shifted. Like meanwhile, like before when you were involved in this thing, you know, all your wants and expectations were like focused on like things that person should be doing. But then now that person's no longer in your life, your wantiness shifts from like wanting that person to, to do things in the context of a relationship to now I just want them back. Your wantiness like shifts to that. But you forget about all the things that led up to that point. You forget about all the problems. And more often than not, they're not resolved. Like, like when I think back when I was much younger, and you go through a breakup and you'd be like, oh, uh, all I want is her back. Literally her back. No, but uh, you go through that where you're just like, I just want her back, you know. The good is better than the bad and all that. While I felt that way at the time, like now when I look back at it, I'm like, thank goodness. Thank goodness I just got through that. Maybe there's certain people who they can make it work. They break up, get back together, and it, they find a way to make it work. I don't know. I know that happens. But looking back at my younger years especially, where you, you, you feel this initial, like, you know, you're this hungry ghost, and you're like, I just, I just want that person back. Thank goodness that that isn't what happened. Because usually it doesn't work out, and it just very quickly you pick up, you you pick up on those things again. Like you start to remember the problems, you start to see the seeds of those things. Because this isn't a new thing that you're starting. You know, there's a lot of things already, that have already been established, and. Uh, so when I look back at that, I'm like, oh, thank goodness. You know, I'm really glad that I didn't just end up in the same situation again and have to, you know, go through it twice. 
bunch of relationship talk here, but it's part of it's part of life, and you know, it's part of everything. Children can run free. 